Welcome to episode 480 of the CyberLaw Podcast, where lawyers talking technology, security, privacy, and government, and we've got a lot to talk about today. We're going to be expressing views, of course, that are not shared by our institutions, our clients, our friends, uh, the people who care about us most, our family, or our pets. Joining me for the news roundup, uh, Jim Dempsey, who teaches policy at Stanford and law at UC Berkeley. David Chris, who is a founder of Culper Partners and formerly uh, in charge of the National Security Division at the Department of Justice. And Chris Conte, who's a Steptoe partner, who came back after 17 years at the SEC, came back to Steptoe and has already represented a public company in an SEC enforcement action about data breach, which is exactly what we've asked him to come on to talk about today. And I'm Stuart Baker, formerly with NSA and DHS, the host and chief provocateur for today's program. Chris, I'm going to ask you to kick us off. The SEC has unveiled a lengthy, maybe a little sort of over-argued set of charges against SolarWinds and their information security director. It wasn't, he wasn't even CISO when some of these things happened, but he was in charge of the information security. And the SolarWinds debacle is notorious because they were the mechanism by which an enormous number of security providers were compromised. They were so badly compromised themselves that the attackers were able to change their code to make it easier to break into everybody else who was using their software. So it was a, it was a true disaster, and it's no wonder it's getting attention. But the SEC has really unloaded on not just SolarWinds, but on their information security guy on kind of three theories. And I'm going to ask you to tell us what the three things that they say SolarWinds and Tim Brown, their uh, information security guy, did that were fraudulent. Sure. So they really focus on three types of public disclosures, Stuart. They look at statements that were put out that described the company's cybersecurity practices and policies. And in particular, they focus on a security statement that was on the website during the relevant period. They also look at the company's SEC filings. And then in particular, when the company discloses the actual Sunburst cyber attack. So just generally in terms of the security statement, the SEC looked at that and said, hey, that's materially misleading because the company was touting that it had, you know, these supposedly strong cybersecurity practices. And they used statements that concealed from the public what the SEC alleges were actually known poor securities practices. And those, according to the SEC, affected the NIST framework. It related to them, the company failing to maintain a secure development life cycle for the software it was developing. They also called out failures to enforce strong password requirements and remedy access control problems. So I, I have two questions on that. Sure. Uh, one, none of this was part of any of their formal security stuff. It was on their website. It was to say, this is how we do security. Does that matter? Or can you be engaged in security fraud just because you've got something up on your website? You certainly can. And, uh, you know, any disclosures that are made to the public that investors and analysts could review and see it's information being made, provided to the, to the, you know, investing public and statements about its practices and, and policies. And yes, they can be relied upon. 
that is, in fact, what the SEC has done in prior cybersecurity cases. So my other question has to do with almost all of the things that they charge SolarWinds with, not having fully complied with the NIST framework. Frankly, if you've read the NIST framework, it's very hard to know whether you're complying with it or not. It's a set of things that you do that you want to think about while you're doing your security. And and it's a little hard to say you have failed or passed the NIST framework test. But that and their password policies and maybe even their secure lifecycle development, it wasn't that they did nothing. It's that there were problems with what they did. And in password policy, the problems were mainly that they had a policy and they were unable to get people to follow it everywhere. These are sets of screw-ups. And so I guess my question is, do you get to say, well, it's fraud if you say we're doing this, and then it turns out not everybody is observing your password rules, say? You know, I think that what it calls out, Stuart, is to be keenly aware of the words that you're using and the manner in which you're describing your cybersecurity controls and practices. And so the SEC found enough tension, I think, to say that based on what it saw in internal documents, presentations, emails, text messages, that when you compared that to what was the public-facing statement, it went beyond just inconsistencies. It went into knowing and intentional fraud and concealment. So the SEC calls out the fact that this is a company whose crown jewels were essentially compromised and that they were being sold to other companies. So unquestionably, that circumstance is heavily involved in why this case was brought, plus the fact that some of these alleged failures to disclose risks go back all the way to the company's IPO. And so that also creates, you know, additional incentives for saying that the company hasn't been truthful in what it's been saying all along. The second set of problems the one that I found the least persuasive actually was they said, you've been issuing standard disclaimers saying, yes, there could be security problems and that would be very bad. And investors should be aware of the risk of security attacks and failures. But you didn't explain just how unhappy some of your security engineers were. And therefore, those broader kind of generalized pablum statements are insufficient. And I guess my question is, probably everybody has employees who have particular jobs that they think the company is not doing a great job of of meeting, right? All the DEI staff thinks that diversity doesn't get a high enough attention. And the people who worry about environmental and uh, social and governance issues don't think those issues are really carefully considered and that there have been real failures. And they're emailing each other about that, just like the security guys are saying, can you believe we say how good our security is when we've screwed this up and we screwed that up? How do you how do you deal with the problem that you've got a whole bunch of employees, all of whom have their own view and who are making a record that the SEC could go back and cherry pick to say, oh, obviously you weren't disclosing. Right. So I think one of the key things that you have to remember in these cases, you know, the SEC has brought disclosure controls violations in in virtually all of these cases that they brought in this area. And so one of the things they fault SolarWinds for is the fact that it 
didn't have adequate disclosure controls. So Stuart, I guess what I'm saying is you've got to manage to accumulate that information. You've got to be able to move it up the chain. You've got to present it to the individuals who have responsibility for making disclosure decisions. And then they have to, the company has to be mindful of what it's saying and how those things need to be tweaked and revised. So you can have a whole lot of dissent and discussion below, but if that's not getting to people who then are responsible for making the decisions, that's how the SEC is saying, hey, that's got to happen so that you're telling and presenting an accurate picture. It doesn't mean you got to say everything. But you got to have people deciding, calling balls and strikes. Well, but I, I would have thought that if I were Tim Brown or I, anybody reading about Tim Brown's uh, fate, I would say, I am going to take every bad thing that anybody says about our security and make sure it goes to the board or the, at least the CEO. I am going to be a pass through because if I pass it through and somebody else makes the decision not to say it, it's no problem for me. And if I fail to pass it through and the SEC decides that's the thing that should have been disclosed, I'm screwed. Yeah. Can I jump in on that? Because sure. I mean, I have a couple of thoughts on this. I didn't think I would say anything, but I can't stop myself. So narrowly speaking, first, I would say my anecdotal experience of late is that this case is having an impact. It is scaring the pants off of CISOs and others, maybe towards what Stuart's describing. But it's even more frightening, I think, than the old criminal case against the Uber CISO who had sort of been accused of, I guess, can't remember if he was convicted of mis- misprision mis- pri- mis- of felony and also yeah. obstruction of justice. But that that was an unusual case. That was an unusual case. This is a classic so case. Th- this one has got, I will say, it has the attention, I think, based on anecdotal but nonetheless substantial experience in recent conversation. And I think the, that's a feature, not a bug from Gary Gensler's perspective. It seems to me it fits in and can be understood in the frame of the administration's efforts, which the SEC seems sympathetic with, to try to regulate and enhance and what they call lift and shift responsibility for cybersecurity away from end users and towards producers. And they do that, you know, using all the tools, the appeal to moral decency and self-interest, risk of liability at the board level, ideally, and then if necessary, regulation. And so I sort of can't, without really knowing much about the details of the merits, I cannot help but sort of see this within that frame, that it's part of the broader cybersecurity policymaking apparatus. And I think the lawyers are going to want to give people language that, uh, it's kind of a, an insurance policy against not everything getting up to them, right? They're never going to put out a security statement that doesn't begin with the words, not everything we intend to do gets done perfectly. We're offering you our statement of aspiration. We're human like anybody else. And therefore, you should not assume that everything we say here is always done exactly this way. That's just life. But we we take your security very seriously. (laughs) Footnote six, we might be lying. (laughs) Stuart, if you have one more minute, I would just want to touch on the fact that, you know, the SEC came out with guidance in 2011 to public companies saying, hey, you guys need to be considering the materiality of these cybersecurity breaches. 2018, they come back and say, now it's an interpretive release. Pay attention. You guys aren't disclosing. Now they've just come out with rules that make it mandatory to disclose, yep. you know, within four business days, material breaches. 
and go through a whole host of disclosure. And you know, the SEC's view is companies are being mispriced. That's the big argument, right? Which is investors are making decisions and they're buying a company that really isn't the company they think. That's classic SEC stuff, but it really is gonna, as David said, this case together with the new rules that go into effect are really gonna make companies and their CISOs have, you know, the hair stand up on the back of their- That's for sure. Okay, so let's talk very quickly about the last event, which is when they actually discovered that they were being pwned by foreign governments. And it was a very clever, Thing that had modified their code to make everybody else vulnerable. And it took them a while to figure it out. And even after they figured it out, they were slow to tell their customers, let alone their investors. And I guess my question is, is it really necessary? The SEC makes it appear that they should have said, hey, we just figured out that these guys have done this. And then when they figured out that these guys had done something else, they should have discovered that, oh, we figured out that they'd done this other thing. I would have thought that uh, that would not be what either the U.S. government or the customers want said if they're afraid that once the attacker realizes that he's not long for having the access he has, he'll start to do something pretty drastic and hostile. And so the idea that this should all be disclosed in real time bothered me a lot. Yeah, so the information about the attacks was something that came to SolarWinds' attention over the course of 2020. And so when they finally made that disclosure, the SEC says, when you disclosed it, you still did it using words that made it sound like it was hypothetical and theoretical, rather than that the attack had actually been successful and exploited the software with respect to other companies. So, you know, Stuart, you're, you're right that there can be all sorts of concerns about disclosing the fact that publicly that attacks are, are where actually the new rule has a attorney general exception to reporting under the AK. But, you know, I don't know enough about the background here to know whether any of those sort of you know, government considerations were coming into play. But really the focus here was you said that the attack was more theoretical in terms of, you know, occurring when it actually had occurred. And that's sort of classic SEC. Anytime you say something may have occurred and it actually occurred, prepare to get to get in trouble. David? Well, just again, to put that in a broader frame, I do think there is a really interesting question around the profusion of individual department and agency obligations to disclose cyber attacks and vulnerabilities and incidents. And we've talked about on this podcast before a need to sort of deconflict and yeah. rationalize all of those many and varied. I mean, there are some in statute like Circea, but most of them come out of regulatory efforts pursued individually as far as can be seen. So it's a little bit like spaghetti up against the wall. At some point, there does need to be a deconfliction effort. There's been some work in that direction. And it is true, I think, what Stuart was saying, that like there's a, an understanding of how to balance equities in the vulnerabilities, disclosure processes that sophisticated companies use because there is a risk of tipping off attackers or new people who might understand, even if they didn't create the vulnerability, they might exploit it. So you often don't want to disclose till there's a patch or whatever. And so I just, again, if there's inconsistencies and you're required to make a full and complete public statement, but that would be 
in conflict with the best thinking in terms of cybersecurity protection, then you, you've got a problem. Somebody's going to have to iron out all these wrinkles. I think Stuart's the man to do it, but we'll see who the administration appoints. <laughs> anyway. I doubt that uh, anybody wants me to iron that out, but okay, Chris, thank you. That was a great overview. We will be hearing about this for the next five years. And when you start filing briefs uh, on behalf of clients, <laughs> come back and we'll talk about them. Yeah. All right, Jim, I want to go back because we gave the Biden administration's AI executive order quick one-two review, but it had just come out when we had our last episode. So I thought it might be fun or useful if you could walk us through some of the things that we didn't cover last time about what's in that order. Yeah, well, absolutely necessary, Stuart. It's nearly 20,000 words. 20,000 words, right. Yeah. <laughs> it covers an awful lot. It's certainly the, the first executive order in history that includes as a defined term, omics or omics, I don't even know how to pronounce it, which is a term <laughs> yeah. that refers to biomolecules and talks about integer op uh, operations. It's a very, very detailed, very, very comprehensive effort. Now, overall, it is, it's trying to have its cake and eat it too, obviously, with respect to the AI revolution. That is the dual trend or the dual set of messages in the executive order is that the U.S. and society at large, I guess, can maximize the benefits to be derived from artificial intelligence while at the same time controlling the risks. And as a result of this, it is a very, very, very process-oriented executive order. Mandates very little at least on the private sector, like all executive orders, it is the president telling his administration what to do. It is the president giving directions to the Secretary of Commerce, the Secretary of Energy, the Department of Defense, the Attorney General, do this, do that, with a variety of deadlines there, all of which, again, around these dual themes of let's maximize the benefits of AI for society and for the U.S. in particular, and let's control the risks. So it marches through a very wide range of issues, AI in critical infrastructure, AI and CBRN, chemical, biological, radiological, and nuclear risks, AI and synthetic content, use of federal data for training AI systems, innovation and competition, impact upon workers in the workforce, civil rights, consumer protection, privacy. And again, requires that these agencies, uh, for example, NIST alone is direct, the National Institute of Standards and Technology is uh, directed to promote consensus industry standards for safe, secure, and trustworthy AI, develop benchmarks for auditing AI systems, establish guidelines for red teaming of AI. Secretary of Energy developed tools to evaluate AI capabilities to develop nuclear or biological weapons, etc. So a lot to be done before noon on January 20th, 2025. I think some of the deadlines are after that, but... Uh, <laughs> so, but sort of this is where the administration has been going and arguably where the nations of the world are going. Nobody is quite prepared to say 
at the federal level, although obviously some in the scientific community, in fact, have said that there should be more direct regulation. There are some proposals in Congress, which I don't think are going to go anywhere for more direct regulation. But instead, it is sort of an effort to build sets of guidelines, procedures, guidance, frameworks around artificial intelligence. The one thing which you may have hit on last time, there is one sort of quite directive measure, which is interesting. The Secretary of Commerce is directed to invoke the Defense Production Act to require companies developing, and I'm going to get to this in depth in a second, dual-use foundation models, require those companies to report to the government their plans, such as their physical and cybersecurity measures taken to protect model weights, the results of their red teaming, et cetera. And that seems to me to be very interesting and arguably very important. What the administration is basically saying is we need to know more about where this is going and we need to get some initial heads up on where this is going. And the focus here, this dual use foundation model, which is a very interesting concept. It is an AI model that is trained on broad data, generally uses self-supervision, contains at least tens of billions of parameters. That is the relationship between sort of the items that help the, the neural network work. Is applicable across a wide range of context and that exhibits or can be easily modified to exhibit high levels of performance at tasks that pose a risk to security, including both national security as well as economic security, public health, such as the ability to lower the barrier for entry for non-experts to design chemical weapons, biological weapons, or to launch offensive cyber operations. So there's this notion that we are on the verge, that the next generation... Yes, this is not today's generation, but it's pretty clearly the next one. The next one. I, was, I saw one estimate that the sort of threshold that the order uses, these sort of numerical operational thresholds, are about five times the capability of GPT 4.0. But right. that sort of next... We're talking next year... <laughs> What's going what's to become available next yep. year? And this fear, this concern, that could be a significant leap and that it would have these models, once made available publicly through APIs, let alone actually releasing the model weights and releasing the models themselves, but making the models available through an API or through some other means like OpenAI has done, that these models literally next year, will have unpredictable capabilities. Let me offer a slightly more cynical view of that. If they had set the bar lower than that, people would say, hey, you've, you've retroactively required me to do a bunch of things. Whereas this way, they're talking about stuff that's going to happen. Everybody has a, an opportunity to get ready and to do it in a way that the government thinks is right. So it may or may not be that there's going to be a big surprise of emergent behavior out of the next generation, but I think they were trying to be practical. Well, and A, they were being practical, and B, they were addressing the uncertainty factor here, which no one actually knows right. what the next generation will be capable of. And the government basically saying, please work with us. 
to raise these. Now, well, when, when you say DPA, you're not just saying police. <laughs> no, exactly. No, 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 exactly. The, the, the Defense Production Act, and, and basically, by the way, I think that carries the implied conclusion on the part of the administration that this technology does fall under the Defense Production Act requirements, which gives the government a wide range of other powers and tools should it choose to exercise them when the time comes. Well, my memory of the DPA is it falls within the DPA if the president says so. If they were able to to cover uh, personal protective gear and a variety of medical equipment from a standing start, they could certainly do it. And it's also whatever China says is critical to its national security. Uh, we, we should it's put it's good on, for China. Yep, we should put it. under our, our TPA. You know, I, I found this order a little maybe heavier on regulation, in part because of this DPA thing than, than I guess you did, Jim. I, I sort of read it as launching a thousand regulatory ships, you know, albeit indirectly, and felt they sort of really, I mean, I admire the comprehensive quality of this short novel, uh, as you said, 20,000 words. But I perceive it as, as just emphasizing regulation, at least in, in the near future. Well, I think there's grounds for that, David. I think mm-hmm. it is, my point is, it is not immediately regulatory. It is yeah, directing okay. agency heads, uh, secretaries, to launch a variety of initiatives. That's right. Yeah, okay. With mm-hmm. a little bit of that traditional public-private partnership, collaboration, voluntariness, yeah. but with, all, again, we, what we're seeing from the administration on cybersecurity, a little bit more of the, but we're going to start regulating here and using existing authorities. Some of the regulatory stuff that they put forward is not really AI regulation. It's just AI adjacent. Like when they say, yeah. we want better controls on synthetic bio. For sure, we do. But that's a response to a fear that people could use AI to do a better job of creating really nasty bugs that they could create today. Yeah, I saw saw that same tendency, Stuart, in the Section 9 on privacy, which uh, focuses, among other things, on commercially available information, i.e. data brokers, which has been an issue before AI. It's a little bit shoehorned into this order, but as you say, partly based upon the assumption by the administration, which is that AI magnifies the potential for a lot of these trends that had already been in in play and a lot of these concerns that had already been in play. Yeah, I really saw a pretty strong overlap or adjacency with both privacy and cybersecurity regulations or hopes for regulations and, and where they don't necessarily have direct authority or they doubt their direct authority, or they just haven't been able to affect it very well. They were sort of, at a minimum, putting down a marker in this order that if something affects privacy and cybersecurity and there's some kind of AI aspect, they may come in through the exactly. flanking maneuver of this order instead of taking it head on. Exactly. Uh, that was, And it's sort of based again upon this premise, uh, what was the movie, you know, AI everywhere, everything, all the time. It's the, <laughs> the premise that AI is... It's like word processing. It's like data mining. It's like TCP IP, you know, Vince Cerf's famous IP on everything and everything on IP. So everywhere you look, you see AI, some of it's hype, some of it's real. So yeah, I think there are things in disorder. And the cybersecurity thing is interesting as well, because again, on the one hand, they are worried about 
critical infrastructure operators incorporating AI into their operations, including, I assume, into their operational technology, and worried about what cybersecurity vulnerabilities those critical infrastructures may be creating. And then at the same time, there's direction to the Secretary of Defense to capitalize on AI's potential to improve cybersecurity. So this duality of, you know, it's the best of technologies, it's the worst of technologies, permeates this executive order. I will say one thing, I'm not sure, and this may push, David, this, this may push us to the, push the administration to the regulatory approach. I'm not sure that safety testing and red teaming is the answer. There's a lot of emphasis put on that. And yet with these foundation models, one of the big issues is overhang. Overhang being the concept that even the people developing the models can't figure no out idea. all of their capabilities. <laughs> right. And that, <laughs> and that even your red team isn't going to find all of the capabilities, but an army of individuals out there, including some yeah. very nasty people, are going to find capabilities in, a, in the model that were absolutely not contemplated by the developer of the model. Jim, you'd be more expert than me on this, but when I talk to real technical experts and ask them, so how much compute power is actually needed to create explainable AI as opposed to regular old mysterious AI? And they're like, oh, somewhere between seven and a hundred X. And so nobody is going to do that until it's too late. Right. I, I mean, right. And, and, and it actually, this order is, I think, explicitly agnostic on the benefits of open source models versus closed. And you can red team the hell out of it. But if it's out there, it's again, like a little bit, maybe too late. I don't know. I, I don't know how to assess the pros and cons, but I didn't note that. Yeah, exactly. It stuck out That's to a me. good point to call out, uh, David, that the, the, the order takes absolutely no position that I can see on the transparency debate and whether right. openness is better or secrecy is better. And in fact, it explicitly has a section basically saying we're going to have to deal with the fact that in some cases, these model weights are going to be widely available, and that shifts the risk calculus. Yeah, I actually think it kind of pushes you toward openness with the aggressive effort to deal with antitrust issues. Right. Everybody knows there's only three or four companies that probably have the resources to develop these models and keep advancing them. And so it's an inherently consolidated industry. And so the logical thing, if you're going to try to bring antitrust to bear, is to start thinking about what would be monopolization. And monopolization is almost certainly the direct opposite of open sourcing your, your product. So the idea of bringing to bear competition law on what people are doing in this field is a way of pushing them in the direction of open sourcing, which is probably inconsistent with safety concerns. Well, in which sets up a classic conflict between the national security interests and the antitrust interests as you've defined them. So I think there will be pushback against the trend to openness. And I, I'm not, again, not super expert on this. My sense is that, you know, Microsoft and Google feel like they've got kind of a head start on this and favor the closed. Meta, I think, has gone more open with its models. And that may reflect, again, how shall I put it in nice terms, fiduciary duties to maximize profits under Delaware law. I mean, they're, you know, pursuing their own economic interests. And that's competition, I guess. But in a way, if one of them goes open, that may be the, the, the thing that matters the most uh, over yeah, time. but for so. this, I mean, 
personally, I think that what uh, Meta did was irresponsible. So could be. My theory on this is they are in the hunt right now, but unlike Google and unlike Microsoft, it's not immediately obvious how they make any of the products that actually make the money better with AI. So from their point of view, throwing it out and seeing what happens is probably the best opportunity to get value out of this, out of the position they're in. So that doesn't mean it's not irresponsible. It could be. But I think that yeah. that may explain why they've done what they've done. I don't know enough about it. I just think it's interesting that we're seeing both the order not take a hard position and the big tech companies diverging a bit in their approach for good or ill, or I don't know. I'm not sophisticated enough and don't understand the economics of it enough, but it is notable, the difference. Yeah. So, all right. There's two other things that came out on AI that we can probably cover pretty quickly. Uh, the Bletchley Park announcement and the OMB guidance. I mean, if, if the executive order was boringly in the weeds. <laughs> <laughs> Jim had to read the whole OMB memo. Before I get to the OMB memo, which I think is highly significant, actually, a number of uh, countries met at the storied uh, Bletchley yep. Park November 1st and 2nd. It included not only the sort of OECD countries, but also China and um, India, Korea, Singapore, United Arab Emirates. So a wide range of countries. At the end, they issued a declaration which got some press attention. Uh, the UK government, which was the host of the meeting, promoted it as well or pumped it up. I actually think it's, there's not much there. They basically, again, as the U.S. executive order say, we uh, simultaneously want to promote all of the benefits of AI and to encourage innovation and development of AI while at the same time addressing and controlling the risks. So none of this pause that we saw suggested by some tech leaders right. earlier this year, again, sort of full bore ahead and manage and control and respond to the risks. This was referred to as a declaration, but I noted with a lawyer's eye that at the end of it, it doesn't say anything about we hereby commit to this. It said the countries represented were, and it listed right. <laughs> uh, the countries. So uh, they're, they're going to meet again next year. Uh, in fact, I think they have two meetings next year. Fine. I'm always very skeptical of international collaboration activities, particularly if you've got the U.S. and China in the, in the, in the same room. So yeah. I don't see much there. The OMB memo, on the other hand, is clearly a case of rubber hitting the road. The executive order ordered the OMB to issue guidance, gave it some period of multiple weeks, and the OMB, in fact, obviously had it already drafted and issued it the final uh, the next day. Interestingly enough, issued it as a draft for public comment. And I think the comment period is 30 days. So I think that's going to be around December 5th. Interesting to me that the, um, and I think creditable, that the OMB would draft a rule binding government agencies, not binding individuals and companies, but binding government agencies Still. and put it out for public review. I think that's part of the administration's commitment to consult as widely as they can. Again, it is basically the title of it is 
advancing innovation and managing risk. So clearly trying to have, uh, have their cake and eat it too. Calling out two categories of AI, safety impacting AI and rights impacting AI and setting for each of them a number of requirements. Again, focused on impact assessment, testing, red teaming, ongoing monitoring, and also on both the safety impacting and the rights impacting, talking about when human involvement is needed in a decision-making process. Uh, Sorting that out is very, very, very difficult as to human on the loop, in the loop points, but certainly this will have an impact on government procurement. And this is one of the most immediate uh, areas in which the government does have power, use of technology in law enforcement, government priority setting in the enforcement arena, both SEC type enforcement, as well as DOJ and street criminal, traditional DOJ enforcement benefits, hiring. So I think this does show the depth of the thinking that has gone into this issue in the administration. They've got a lot of people clearly working on this issue. And I think we're going to see, unlike some, you know, it, it, it's very odd that some executive orders never even get implemented. You have the president ordering something and nothing actually happens or very little happens. I think here the administration clearly has a lot of people pushing this. And so we're going to see over the next six months, a steady stream of orders and directives and guidelines and so on. And perhaps, as David said, real regulation. All right. Okay. That was very helpful as a tour of the horizon because a lot happened last week. And one of the other things that happened last week was that the Supreme Court jumped into cyber law. Everybody remembers when uh, President Trump blocked somebody and was told by the courts, hey, you can't block somebody. Uh, Unlike everybody else on Twitter, you've created a a public forum that uh, you can't kick people out of. Now it turns out lots and lots of uh, politicians have been sued for trying to block people from Facebook and Twitter accounts that they have been using to communicate to the public on. And two of those cases got up to the Supreme Court and got argued. And I would say what's, I thought the most interesting thing Uh, It wasn't substantive. It was how hard this was for everybody on all sides of the deep partisan divide that we now have in Washington. Yeah, that was my sense, too. This is a very interesting couple of cases with some super hard issues. When I listened to the oral arguments, and I thought the case, by the way, was very well argued for some very fine lawyers involved. You could just see the gears grinding and the justices struggling with it. And, you know, it is true that this thing first came up in the context of President Trump, so that gives it a high political coding. But since then, I think the profusion of it across other people have kind of reduced the standard right-left valence, and it just feels plain vanilla hard. As Justice Kagan, I think, said in the oral argument, my God, you look at these cases and you, you just see First Amendment rights all over the place. You know, you've got the, the politicians' rights, you've got the people who were blocked and their rights, you've got the public rights to listen. And it's just, it's really very difficult. So, I mean, from my point of view, I, I looked at it and I'm like, so what is the framework? What are the easy cases? What are the hard cases? What are we actually fighting about? And I mean, I give you a few thoughts on it, but 
with no pretense of being a super expert in all of this. There are some easy cases. The fight, sorry, I should say, I guess, is some people who had accounts uh, on Facebook or Twitter when they were candidates or otherwise before taking governmental positions and then maintained those accounts thereafter. And they posted in them updates from the city council meeting that they were part of or whatever. And the officials say, hey, these are accounts that we maintained in our personal capacity before we were elected and in our personal capacity after we were elected. It's essentially no different or at least not meaningfully different than if we had an account about bird watching or about restoring antique cars or some other hobby of ours. Yes, it talks about governmental activity, but anybody could have also gone to the city council meeting that we were in and posted the same. We didn't use our staff, our governmental staff or resources to do this, to write the the tweets or the posts or whatever. So it's private behavior and it shouldn't create these weird kind of public forum, First amendment kinds of issues of public access. We can block just like anybody else can block in keeping with the terms of service. It's a curated set of social media accounts just like you expect. And I do think, Stuart, when you're the Secretary of Homeland Security in the next Trump administration, if you have websites or social media accounts for your bird watching or antique car restoring habits or your various other personal activities, you're probably going to be okay. You're certainly not coming on the podcast after that. <laughs> <laughs> right, exactly. Do I? I think I may have a right to be on this podcast. So, but the, the way the court was looking at it and the way the lawyers were sort of arguing, it was a mix of on the one hand, when is the blocking, quote unquote, state action that would implicate constitutional rights rather than private action that generally would not? And or to what extent is a social media account some kind of public forum in which political speech occurs and the public might have some kind of right of access? That's fine and dandy as a framework, um, but it doesn't really end the analysis. It sort of begins it because... You know, and I think this actually came up in the argument, like if President Trump invites some people to Mar-a-Lago and has a little chat about whatever's on his mind. God yeah, a n- nuclear uh, submarine plan. Uh, yeah, <laughs> apart from the, you know, revealing of classified information in an unlawful fashion, just put that aside. But I mean, you know, he doesn't have to invite everybody to Mar-a-Lago. And, and, you know, when when the attorney general gives a press conference in the DOJ Great Hall, you know, some media come, but not everybody gets to come. And, you know, the White House, I guess all the more in the White House press briefing. So just because politicians are acting or speaking in their official capacity, even in official government buildings, does not mean it's like a public park where everybody gets to attend. So even if it is kind of so-called state action, that doesn't really resolve the question. I think the best argument maybe on the other side, that is on behalf of the people who were blocked and are complaining about it, is, well, maybe that's right for traditional physical public fora. But Twitter, Facebook, social media, it's a new paradigm. And just like the Carpenter decision about cell phone location tracking required a wholly new paradigm for or arguably wholly new paradigm for Fourth Amendment analysis. So social media now requires a whole new paradigm for First Amendment analysis and right of access analysis in particular. And, you know, if you're really running the government, if you're really uniquely making or communicating policy in your Twitter account, like some people think President Trump was doing maybe, 
Well, maybe then you can't block. If you're just issuing tweets or posts about things that are otherwise publicly available and knowable, and if the New York Times sent a reporter to the school board meeting, you know, would be fine, then maybe it won't be deemed subject to these new and stricter things. But at least in some settings, I think maybe the argument is to try to make an analogy to Carpenter that this is really new and different. I'm not sure that's going to prevail, by the way. If I had to bet on this, I think I would bet the court's going to come out largely in favor of allowing blocking and keeping with ordinary terms of service, even for accounts that talk about government business, as long as they're not the exclusive avenue for communicating or making policy. But it's it's super hard and interesting. Clearly, they were struggling. My predictions are worth absolutely nothing here. I will say there's one last frame on this is so there's these cases which are super hard in and of themselves. And I cannot imagine how excited the law professor, Jim, you may know, the law professor community must be turning handsprings. So many people are going to get tenure on the backs of these cases. But there are two other cases that make an interesting intersection with this. One is the so-called jawboning case where the Bureau and DHS or whomever are telling the social media accounts, hey, this is an Al-Qaeda social media account, or this is a Russian bot. You might want to take it down. Of course, it's your choice. If you'd like to be audited by the IRS, you cannot take it down or you can do what we're asking. You know, whatever. There are versions of that. But the jawboning cases are up there. And then there are a couple of state laws, the so-called do not take down laws that forbid the taking down of certain social media accounts. Those do have a very, very strong political valence to them, unlike maybe a little bit this case. And so I was just sort of imagining the intersection, a government official tweeting about government conduct, which happens to be telling a social media company to take down an account and how that would kind of arise at the intersection of these three cases. So stay tuned for a thrill-packed Supreme Court term. I assume by June we'll know the answer to all three of these cases, and we'll probably have a pretty good sense of which of the nine justices actually have or know how to use their social media accounts. Okay. Anyway, fun case. It is. And I agree with you. I think actually Justice Kagan's observation that there are First Amendment rights all over the littering the uh, the courtroom is actually probably going to be helpful to the states in the uh, cases they're making because Net choice, which is sort of the um, the big tech representative for arguments that big tech companies themselves don't want to be tagged with, has been saying, "This is easy. We have all the First Amendment rights in their own." <laughs> right, right. So we should be able to do whatever we want. If we want to shut people up, that's us talking. If we want to insist on a particular point of view, that's us talking. So we're just talking. Everybody else should just shut up because we've got the First Amendment rights. And I think it's obvious the more you look at social media that that's not true, but it's the kind of argument that might sound good the first time you hear it. Yeah. And it is interesting that Kagan, I think, would code typically to the more liberal side of the court is the one making that observation. And I assure you, she is quite smart and aware of the broader implications of that in the way that delights right-wing freaks like you, Stuart. So <laughs> it's a... <laughs> Just kidding. So anyway, I think I think these are cases, all three of them, particularly this one, are, are going to be fun to watch. And we're going to learn a lot about a lot of things in this space. Yeah. Although I have to say, it, telling the Supreme Court that this is just like Carpenter and they should do the same thing. <laughs> I regret that analogy already. <laughs> <laughs> that, 
That's, I, yeah, I, I've said before, it's the Supreme Court's Vietnam. They got in because they thought, oh, they, we, we can fix this. And they have no idea what to do with all the 50 cases that are going to come after it. Yep. Of all the stupid things I've said on the podcast, that might be the stupidest. It was more empirical than normative, but still, I don't know. Anyway, it, it could be a bit messy. I cannot believe we've gotten this far and we haven't talked about what would have otherwise been an stunningly significant development. It's Brussels, so maybe that's why. The European enthusiasm for data protection has finally come home to roost for Facebook and probably for Google. Facebook has just been told, you are not going to be able to do behavioral advertising to uh, anybody in Europe. They've been ordered in no uncertain terms to stop collecting that data. And they have figured out, yep, we're done with that. And they have moved to offering a choice between letting them collect that data and paying $10 a month for your Facebook account. The regulators don't think even that is going to survive review. But we're now starting to see real change. And it's a change that is limited to Europe. They're not offering this to anybody else. They're saying, okay, you got your rules. So the Brussels effect is in effect where the, the mandate of Brussels extends, but it doesn't extend to North America or South America or Asia. So we're really going to see a transformation and probably a dramatic downsizing of companies that have been waxing fat on behavioral data and using it for advertising. So that's very interesting. I thought that was quite telling. And maybe this is just me. Uh, I also noticed that France told Rumble, which is sort of a YouTube competitor about a hundredth the size of YouTube and with a some conservative ties. The French said, well, you've got to, you've got to get rid of uh, Russia today. Uh, you can't let them have a channel on Rumble. And Rumble said, no, I think they've got a First Amendment right or we're willing to do it. And you represent 1% of our market. So screw off. We're just going to cut off France. So that is, uh, that is going to be an option now. We'll see who blanks first. Maybe nobody. I will say I remember I was still at NSA in the 90s, and I was talking to a defense official in France, and I said, you know, if you do some of these things, France could end up cut off from the internet. And he looked at me and he said, oh, devoutly to be wished. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's a good one, Stuart. That's a good one. I thought he was going to say, what's the internet? But okay, that, no, that's, that's great. All right, Jim, David, Chris, thanks so much for joining us for a deeply substantive discussion. Uh, listeners can send their comments to cyberlawpodcast at gmail.com. This has been episode 480 of the Cyberlaw Podcast. You're certainly not coming on the podcast after that. <laughs> <laughs> right, exactly.